I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, a show where readers meet writers. It's a pleasure to have you listening today. The central character in Deepti Kapoor's sprawling and thrilling new novel has learned a powerful truth through a childhood of slavery and servitude. Life can be dangerously precarious. But A.J. is too young and too inexperienced to understand just how shockingly true that will be for him. Ms. Kapoor's novel swerves from India's misty mountain villages to her cacophonous cities and introduces us to characters who embody the nation's extremes. There's great wealth, heartbreaking tragedy, and a burning question of what honor and nobility mean in a place that's undergoing such fundamental change. Everyone is talking about Deepti Kapoor's new novel. It's titled Age of Vice, and she joins us from Lisbon, Portugal. Deepti, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome. Carrie, it's a pleasure for me to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. You know, that's the drumbeat that followed me through this novel. What does it mean to be noble and honorable? And and are there nobility and honor? You know, are they seen as valuable virtues in such a rapidly changing world and environment? And I wondered if those were questions that also followed you into the into the conceiving and the writing of the novel, if you thought about that. I think I, I thought about uh, what makes a noble person, what makes an honorable person, and what choices do they have to confront, and, and why then do they commit such dishonorable acts, uh, what compels them to do so. Yeah, these were the questions I was constantly asking uh, my characters. Yeah, that's interesting to hear you describe it like that, because every, I think every character in the novel has that test, right? Maybe, maybe several times about just who they are, and if they see themselves as virtuous, noble, and then kind of what their price is. Because it's clear that almost everybody has a price in the novel. Is that fair to say? Or how would you describe it? Yeah, everyone does have a price. And um, yeah, uh, maybe, maybe, uh, I mean, I know we'll talk about these characters later, but maybe Neda's father doesn't, his parents, mm, Neda's parents. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're quite um, um, not innocent, but they, they come, they have strong um, values about what is right and wrong. Um, so, but then they can afford to have these values because they come from a sort of a culturally elite background. So, so I would say that they are, they are people who cannot be bought because they have the comfort and security. And, and Neda is, is easily swayed. So she, and young and curious and naive. So um, she, she falls, I would say. That's a really good point that um, virtue is not abstract. I mean, it depends on where you come from, the circumstances that you're living in, what you value, what's at stake, right? I was going to ask you if you if you would describe yourself as a cynic because, <laughs> I mean, there is... There's so much kind of testing of what's your price, what's your price, how, 
how can you be corrupted? Um, but I didn't think about how um, it really depends on your life circumstances and how you see yourself in those life circumstances, doesn't it? Yeah, um, I would, um, in response to quite your question, I think I can come across um, as quite cynical in my in my writing, but I think as well that I think of myself as a disappointed optimist. So I'm, um, <laughs> you know, and 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 someone who's constantly hoping for for things to change. Um, and then finding that things don't change and I have to. Um, and it's interesting because I was thinking about this idea that as a writer, as a novelist, you know, you can either fall on the side of um, reflecting reality or you can uh, basically do some wish fulfillment for your characters, especially when, um, you know, you're, you're completing a novel and you need to create some kind of resolution for your readers. Um, and then I found that I was falling on the side of reflecting reality. So I guess there is a part of me that is a cynic that will, you know, just won't go that cynic sense uh, part of me. How much do you think that uh, that experience of feeling like a disappointed optimist is about your career experience as a journalist, or or is it the case as as many of us? journalists, I think, discover is that that seed is within us. And we carry that into a career in journalism. Was it there before? Or, or and did it really blossom in your career as journalism? Or doesn't really have anything to do with that? Um, I was a journalist in my 20s. And now I'm 42. And then in my uh, around the age of 28, um, I kind of quit journalism and moved to Goa, um, which is a you know beautiful state on the western coast of India with beaches, and and became a yoga teacher. So uh, I felt like I burnt out pretty quickly, and then turned into a novelist. So um, that that side of me, uh, journalism, uh, and and my journalist years in Delhi were. Uh, full of me trying to do serious stuff and then constantly being told by my um, bosses and editors that I needed to uh, go and document this changing city, document um, social trends. Um, and this was, of course, Delhi in the early aughts, um, you know, where this the, the country was transforming so rapidly. We were uh, moving from a socialist economy to a to a more a capitalist one. There was a sort of neoliberal imagining of the city of public spaces, um, and I was right at the center of it. So it was tremendously exciting. Um, but I think that the this this part of me, the cynic part of me, actually is something that developed in my thirties as I, you know, I said I understood the how the the defining story of of India of my country is corruption. Um, and its causes, its consequences, and um, and that's that's really that was the time when I became fully aware um, of my own complicity um, as a as a privileged middle class person sitting on top of a desperately unequal ladder, and also about my duties as a novelist. So many things that I'm curious about about what you've just described. First, I, I'd like to know: was there a was there kind of a single breaking point in your experience as a journalist that, you know, really led you to, I can't do, 
this is not me, I can't do this work, when you headed to another part of India to teach yoga and then ultimately to turn to writing? Or do you think it was an accumulation of, you know, disappointments and experiences? I think um, an accumulation of disappointments and experiences. And also, this is... um, it wasn't just my working life it was my personal life as well that was um you know uh, i i had i i basically lived very hard i worked hard and i partied harder and it was both of these worlds that collided and i um, and then i i think very soon i mean after many years i realized that i needed uh, a break so um delhi as well i would say was one of the reasons i think uh, it was this incredibly heady, decadent, glamorous uh, world that I had entered. Um, and, you know, and, and in the daytime, I'm driving around the city, smoking cigarettes, talking to all kinds of people, uh, trying to figure out what's happening, documenting these trends. And then at night, I was partying a lot. And then at, at some point of time, I just decided uh, I was done. And um, and then actually it was in 2012 um, when there was this horrific um, gang rape and murder of this um, young girl called Jyoti Singh on the on a bus um, in Delhi and there was you know it was a big rupture in India there was um, there were protests following that a deep sense of shame for many Indians including myself and that was when I realized that I wanted to inquire more into the processes and networks of corruption of power and complicity um, that was my awakening you know you you said that you wanted to write about serious things that were happening in this very chain this tumultuous and changing world of Delhi but that your editors wanted you to write about social trends. I mean, was there, am I right in hearing some conflict that they wanted you to write kind of clickbait, um, you know, surface skimming kind of pieces that would draw eyeballs and you were interested in unpeeling back some of the layers of what was happening in the city, which is not an easy story to tell, right? Or not a quick story to tell. Yeah, I, I, what happened was that I looked a certain way, I dressed a certain way, I was young, and um, I wanted to be serious. Uh, I wanted to be considered seriously, and maybe mm-hmm. that was the mistake. And I think I've given some of that to Neda. But um, there was also a big revenue-generating um, lifestyle um, that had just sort of, this was lifestyle journalism. It had just come into Delhi with, um, you know, with with this new economy, with the money and the ideas and uh, that, you know, we were seeing um, coming from outside. And um, that was it, really. It was the ad men in the magazine um, and newspapers that I worked for. They said that we we need feature lifestyle reporters and that's where I was sent off and of course I think there was always that's you know you prove yourself and you'll get um you'll get sent off to do different assignments um and maybe I never really proved myself properly 
But I was always, I, I was surrounded by incredible reporters covering um, crime and politics. And um, yeah, and I learned a lot from them and also from just watching them. And maybe that is what I took into, um, uh, you know, my my eventual um, career as a, as a writer, as a novelist, just watching people. I think the novel does such a great job of plunging us into what it feels as Delhi is going through these changes and how disorienting it is to be in the middle of that change and try to, I mean, as we've said, Netta is the journalist character and she's trying to capture this in some ways, even as she's riding the wave, right, of this change. Um, but, but I'm interested in what it felt like for you. I mean, in the moment, you probably realized that things were kind of turning upside down. You were living in this time when history was, was changing. What was it like? Oh, it was, a, it was, a, it was incredibly exciting. Um, and you were, you know, you were, you didn't really worry about the consequences, but it was this, this moment of um, watching the city turn from a very sleepy, sedate city, you know, with not much going on, um, at least for, you know, young 22-year-old, into this global world-class capital. I mean, you know, you were, you, you were witnessing um, cities being, you know, made from farmland, you know, on the outskirts of Delhi, which used to be farmland, is now this thriving hub of uh, business centers and hospitals and hotels and residential buildings. It's a whole new city. It's called Gurgaon. And, and all of that was just happening all around you, you know, from cinemas and multiplexes and malls and bowling alleys. Then the subway line was introduced. I remember writing the first one and writing a story about it. It was... Hmm. Um, it, it just felt like we were moving, uh, India was moving forward. Um, and, you know, at that point of time, all, even that glamour, the, the, you know, the, the decadence, the wealth that was being created just felt really fresh. Um, and it was only later that, you know, you realize that so much of it was built on the foundation of extreme inequality and suffering. And there was also this narrative um, that was it was a media narrative as well, uh, where, you know, there was a reimagining of uh, a neoliberal reimagining of the public space. This idea from the Yamuna, which is the river in Delhi. It's this um, along the banks of the Yamuna slum settlements. Um, but, you know, suddenly all these people have to go somewhere because we have to make way for boardwalks and art centers and institutions. And our time has come. There was definitely a middle-class feeling of Delhi having arrived, of the country having arrived. I think I better warn our listeners about the the sirens are not in their <laughs> on their street; yeah. they're on yours. Uh, I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's the show where readers meet writers. And I'm in conversation with Deepti Kapoor. First, a note about where she is. She's in Lisbon, Portugal. She's in her house on a busy street. And so you can hear the sirens going by and the horns honking, and that's what that's all about. Uh, And we're having a conversation about her new novel, 
titled Age of Vice, um, about some of her own experiences that led up to uh, informing the writing of the novel. And, uh, and we're going to get to some of the characters here. Deepti, did I, did I interrupt you? You were going to say something? No, I was going to say that one of the reasons that I, uh, my husband and I chose to live in this apartment was because it reminded us of living in uh, in India, the really? sounds, the noises. Oh. Yeah, so when, yeah, it was, <laughs> uh, it felt like home. <laughs> That's lovely. In other words, you want the cacophony of the city in, in as as oh, your gosh, soundtrack yes, to your life. Really. Huh. Always. Yeah. It, nice. it helps in working. It helps. I mean, sometimes, of course, you just want to escape from it. But um, I can't sleep in, in a quiet room. I always need um, some <laughs> oh kind of white noise. So yeah, this is a, a little bit like an Indian city. You're a true yeah. city dweller. Uh, there's something I wanted to ask you that, that you said a moment ago about the narrative that we are changing and it's fresh and it's new and it's modern and everybody's going to be swept along on the wave. You know, in the United States, it's the rising tide lifts all boats. You know, it's that storyline and in some ways mythology that, uh, yes, the rich get richer and the middle class improve and then that sweeps everybody who is on the lower end of the income scale along too, which is not often the case. I wonder if it sounds like there was a similar narrative unfolding in India and perhaps people who were trying to say, but there's this whole class that's getting left behind were drowned out by, you know, the, the, uh, the cheerleaders who were looking at this progress and saying, this is what, what we need to do. What did it look like to you? Yeah, I mean, you're right. It was it was definitely a feeling that um that you know, we have to create wealth and if that wealth is being created or being distributed asymmetrically, that's fine because ultimately everyone will benefit when the country becomes richer. Um and you know, in you can see that there were middle classes being created, there were jobs um um you know that that I, I, for one person, for one thing, as a as a middle class, upper middle class um, woman with a, a very good education, had the kind of opportunities I wouldn't have had in in the old India, and um, and you know the media, the the, the 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 people who controlled the narrative, I would say, um, were the ones who were its biggest the biggest cheerleaders for this new. Um, society, mm, because you know the poor aren't going to uh, be allowed to write about their experiences or say that, hey, wait a minute, this didn't this didn't work out the way you're saying it's going to work out for everybody. We're still here, and nothing's changed for us. So, so you know, it was also about who controls the narrative, um, and I was part of that story. Um, and you know, I I think about when you're a journalist, you're just recording the immediate present. And then when you're a novelist, you're looking back, you're looking, you're reconstructing mm-hmm. from so many things, from memory, but also from research, reports, themes, I mean, everything. So, so this was, as a journalist, I was just part of that story of change. It, it's so difficult in the moment to know, I mean, you know, that's why journalism is kind of writing the first draft of history. It's going to change and there's going to be perspective. It's so hard. 
I, I love your description of then what your role is as a novelist is to really right, make sense of that in a way that journalists have a difficult time doing in the moment. Is that right to say? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when I was um, when I was writing the novel, I was reading a lot of um, all the gaps in my knowledge. I was reading lots of incredible accounts of um, Indian politics and, you know, the relationship between violence, um, uh, politics and, and, and mafias. All of this was written by uh, by journalists. So I was using um, the the, the stuff that incredible investigative journalists had had reported on and then and put together in in books uh, as my sort of fictional background. I mean, it's it's a fictional tale, but it's but it's set in a, so, a social reality. Um, I want to talk about some of the characters here. Um, for, let's let's talk about Netta since we've referenced her a couple times, and she. Her character is drawn from some of the experiences you had as a journalist. I think you've noted she's a young woman of privilege. She's educated. Her parents are educated. What else should we should we know about the role that she's going to play in the novel? So she is, um, you know, she she lives. Her parents are Bohemian. They're cultural elites. Um, she lives in an incredibly powerful address in Delhi, um, a place that speaks of proximity to power, of access to power. She comes from, I would say, old money um, that is being eclipsed in a way by the new money, which is now represented by Sonny and his family. But she and her family still hold enormous power. Uh, in the city and she can be, you know, her mother can just make a phone call and she can be, um, she can get a job as a journalist in any of the leading newspapers, because again, it's all about connections. Um, And I think she thinks that she is a good person, but I would, at at this point of time, I don't think has the right um, moral values to guide her through mm-hmm. this journey. We, we should also say that, and I think you've alluded to this, that she is someone who, as she moves through the city as a journalist, and then in the evenings when she's out clubbing or partying, whatever she's doing, you know, she is recognized as somebody who has privilege, right? She is recognized as someone in a certain class level. And that opens doors for her in a way that she, I would say she takes advantage of, of course, to tell her stories, but that she's also a little embarrassed about? How would you describe it? Yeah, she's, I think um, she doesn't really think about it. And I, and, you know, I, I didn't have a similar background to Nethers, but I, you know, it was this feeling that you could, you could get into any space that you wanted and, um, you know, if you you talked a certain way, you looked a certain way, um, it didn't matter if you had an old car. It didn't matter, really, even if you wore slightly, you know, like tattered clothes or torn jeans. But, you know, she, there's a bearing that, that, that comes, uh, a breeding that comes, uh, I mean, a bearing that comes from your breeding. Like, and that's, that's mm-hmm. Neda. She's, she doesn't even think about her privilege because she's so privileged. 
<laughs> she is, I, I guess, I, here's how I thought of what happens with her developing relationship with Sonny Wadia. Um, and I'm going to ask you to describe in a moment, but she kind of succumbs to his gravitational pull, even though she's kind of aware of what that's going to mean for her own moral compass and her work as a as a journalist. I mean, he seems to exert this kind of force field, if you know what I mean, for her. Yes? Yes, absolutely. And she is also um, quite taken up by the narrative uh, that's being, you know, pushed in certain parts of the media about the changing city, even though she does have a colleague who's warning her um, against it. But at the same time, she she wants to live in an exciting city. And Sunny represents danger, excitement, um, thrill. You know, his his world is just, you know, it's, it's like this you can get caught up in it it's heady it's intoxicating it's alluring and um she's slightly um she's very curious and a little bit naive and that's yeah with a sort of hazy morality i would say (laughs) that's a really good way to describe it uh so she she kind of becomes aware of sunny wadia he is the son well, why don't I ask you to describe um, how you've created him? And then I want to talk about aspects of his character. But who is he? So Sonny is um, the Sonny Vadia is this only son and heir to Bunty um, Vadia, who is, um, I would say that at least in Delhi, he's, you know, they, they are powerful businessmen um, whose sources of where the where the money and power comes from is still um, mysterious. Um, no one really exactly knows. Um, it's they're they're kind of like this shady family who've just entered Delhi with aspirations of building the city. Um, their foundations are murky. The and Sunny is um, he's returned from traveling in Europe and America. He's full of ideas. He's an esthete. He's a patron of the arts. He has this uh, coterie of people around him that he's supporting, and they're artists and filmmakers and musicians and DJs. And um, he's, you know, and I think he wants to launder both his family's reputation, but also use them, their ill-begotten wealth and turn it into something else. Like he does have um, ambitions to build, to build a city, to to make it world-class. And, um, and his father, on the other hand, is just this incredibly powerful, shrewd, ruthless businessman who created the family fortune, um, who's letting his son do what he wants at the moment till, you know, it, it, it's, it's his time to take over. And um, and there is sort of a developing, a brewing power struggle between them, both father and son, about where and how, what what kind of family they're going to be. So, um, and, and then, of course, the sources of their wealth is basically liquor in UP, and it's, 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 their family is violent. Uh, how they got to that money is is a story of violence and cor- and, and corruption. Sonny's interest in building, it, it, I mean, 
it's he was such an interesting character to try to pull apart because in some ways he wants to build just for the sake of building but he play, pays lip service to this idea that again he's going to lift up the the people of the lower castes and life is going to be better for them but you get the impression that this is this is just a superficial thing he says and he knows he ought to feel but he doesn't really feel it <laughs> do you know yeah. what i do yeah he doesn't really I mean? know yeah. what he's doing i mean he he has no right. idea of how the the poor live and what it means um if you're if you're asking for you know thousands uh, of people to be moved from a particular piece of land so that you can go and build a mall on it or whatever you want to build so so it's it's a little bit of unearned um, wealth and privilege and you know India is is also it's an incredibly feudal society Sunny um, has power and influence um, the kind of power and influence that he shouldn't she should not have I mean he's young and he's um, naive as well and and but I, I, I remember uh, seeing a lot of young men um, like him like um basically inheriting that kind of power because they were the sons of very wealthy, powerful people. Yeah, I I wondered about your experience in creating a character who, the deeper the novel, the deeper I got into the novel, I found him deeply damaged, joyless. He's really passive in the face of the corruption that surrounds him. I, I, I wondered if he, I, I, I'd like you to tell me a little bit about, you know, creating this brew of a, of a character who seems to represent, you know, as you say, these young, wealthy, kind of, kind of like the Russian oligarchs, right? Yeah. The sons of the Russian oligarchs. How did you think about what, what to put into the brew of that character? I was I was interested I, in 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 basically creating a character that has a facade of someone who's extremely charming and 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 wealthy but also you know um who'll who'll say something incredibly intelligent and articulate and charm you with that at a party maybe and then you start to peel back the layers and you un- and you understand that it's actually um these all these men mostly are, are, you know, are quite empty inside. And um, mm-hmm. and and I I grew up around boys like this who turned into men like Sonny. So I watched them in a way. Um, and as an outsider, because I was never wealthy and never came from that kind of wealth, um, but I was sent to a school that was full of people like that. So. It was um, interesting to have that sort of outsider experience where you're in the room with these people, but, you know, you're not one of them. So you're always kind of watching them. Um, and and then a lot of these men get sent, as you said, like the sons of uh, Russian oligarchs, they get sent to, um, you know, universities in, in the UK or America, and they come back with ideas to, you know, to transform the city. But... Um, a lot of them forget that they're uh, 
basically part of the elite of a of a country like India that's desperately unequal and one of the most uh, hierarchical, um, corrupt, and unequal societies in the world. So they forget that they they want to kind of take those ideas uh, that they might see in 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 Europe and then sort of put I don't know like transplant them to India. It doesn't work like that. And so many of these men don't have any experience anyway in um, in governing. In you know, in, and they have too much power and influence. A little bit like MBS, I would say, or you know, mm, I was influenced in Saudi even, Arabia. Uh huh. Yeah, and you know, even uh, when Trump was president and Jared Kushner had all these portfolios, you know, it was it was always funny because I used to look at that and think, <laughs> yeah, there, there's the sunnies of the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a scene that I asked you to read um, as an excerpt here, and I'll set it up while you open your book. Um, So Netta, the journalist, has, she's already fascinated by Sonny, and she's trying kind of to play it cool, and she encounters him in an open-air market, and he asks her for a ride home in her car. What, What else would you say about this scene before you read it? He there. I would say that this is also that um, the kind of engaging in the first, um, you know, like this courtship. Um, you know, it's it's they're they're attracted to each other and they're flirting with each other. So it's also a game they're playing, and um, mm-hmm. so it's you know it's it's exciting at this point of time. Uh, none of the bad things have happened yet. So this is, this is, there's a lot of tension, like sexual tension between the two of them as well. But they're also sort of examining each other and and trying to figure out where they come from and, and what their values are. It felt strange to have Sunny Vadia squashed in the passenger seat of her beat up little red Marathi, his knees pressed against the plastic dash. Just ahead, his driver was guiding the box crammed SUV through the streets. I like your car, he said. She pressed a tender hand on the horn, gave it a little pip. I know you're being sarcastic, but I love her. She's temperamental. She gets me from A to B. What more could you ask? A bit more leg room, he smiled, trying to work the seat back. Oh yeah, that's broken. He looked awkward and it amused her a little. This was her domain now. You like old things, don't you? I like good things. That's more subjective. You don't think this car is good? Let's put it this way. I couldn't pull it off. To do that, you have to be at the top of the food chain. So says the crown prince of Delhi. No, no, you're so far above me, I am nowhere near your level. Rubbish. I mean it. You can get away with just about everything. I bet you insult cops when they pull you over, don't you? Her silence told him he was right. And you don't even need money. You have it rooted into you. Look at this car. What about it? I bet you can drive it right up to a five-star and jump out and swan inside and no one bats an eyelid. I never really thought about it. One look at you in the car and everyone knows. You're right up there at the top. You don't know how lucky you are. I know I'm lucky, she said. Don't get me wrong, he went on. I admire it. I've had to construct myself. I'm reminded daily, in the mirror, I'm nothing without my suit, without my car, without my watch. 
Without these props, I barely exist. Speaking of props, she said, do you have any more of those delightful cigarettes? Sure. I finished all yours, by the way. He took out his pack, held on up for her. You changed the subject. She placed the cigarette in her mouth. I guess I was uncomfortable. You shouldn't be. She gazed out at the road. It's hard for me to believe, she said, that you're just a construct. I don't think of people that way. You don't have to. I feel like you're, like you're purposely devaluing yourself. No, I value myself. Like it's false humility. I never said I was humble. <laughs> Novelist Deepti Kapoor reading from her new novel, Age of Vice. And again, you're hearing sirens in the background. We're talking with her. Uh, from Lisbon, Portugal, and she lives on a busy street. So you're hearing the sounds of the city behind her. Okay, we have not talked about the, the, the most interesting and central character in the novel, and that's AJ. And I described him in the introduction as a boy who learns early on the precarity of life. In fact, there's a sentence in the novel that reads, he feels blessed, content, but he tells himself in the dark, you know how precarious life can be. And that just, I thought about that through the entire novel, Deep D, and I thought, that's such a corrosive realization for a child, isn't it? Yeah, and, and um, you know, Ajay, for me, is the heart of the novel. You know, without him, it wouldn't exist in its present form he is this young boy he's been sold off to pay off a family debt and he's um for him even the, the the fact that he is now with people his employers are just nice to him um they treat him like a human being that is enough um that's and and he gets you know he gets fed and he can even play sometimes while he's working in the farm and um, and then later on, of course, he starts to work for Sonny and he starts to construct an identity around being um, a, a Wadia man, whatever that means. Um, and, and then you see his journey from being this sweet, innocent little boy to um, a very accomplished young man who can uh, be chauffeur, bodyguard, cook, uh, cleaner, everything that Sonny desires. And he's just there to do what Sonny needs him to do. Is it true that you, um, you've you drawn some parts of his character, and, and particularly his childhood, from a boy that you met when you were living in Goa or traveling in other parts of India? Uh, yeah, I was I was traveling in the mountains while I, when I was living in Goa, and I met um, a little, a young boy, around nine or ten years old and um, in a guest house um, in a Himalayan village and he um, he told me this his story of um, being sent away to pay off some family debts and despite this story of loss despite the fact that he um, was living away from his family and that his future was so precarious um, and so was his present he was just full of um, hope hope and optimism and and he was playful and loyal and warm and generous and you know and I kind of took his story and combined it 
with the stories of the um, and lives of the young men that I used to see working uh, in the private mansions in Delhi when I was a journalist. Um, again, late at night, um, young men who were there to serve you, um, basically cater to your every need, even um, sometimes in these late night parties when you were um, when people were at their most extreme, there they were these young men, and you know, almost invisible, but not. So when I when I combine these two stories, um, the character of Ajay was born. Mm. You know, he strikes me as one of those. Uh, I guess one of those people that kind of serve the wealthy w- with a with an invisible efficiency. And, and that is what they are there to be in some ways, invisible, yes? Absolutely. Um, the whole point is that um, they're, they're invisible, but, you know, the, paradoxically, they have to intuit what the wealthy want even before they know what they want. So, so there's this strange relationship that gets made between the master and the servant um and also and and i see this a lot in in india more than you know i I would see it say in the west um because it's also very feudal Mm -hmm. hierarchical society so you see and 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 but they're they're just incredibly efficient incredibly good at what they do the only thing they have to make sure is that no one ever sees them so it's a mm. strange place yeah i know you know i wondered about that because whether it is you see this in a different way in india because i mean you're living in europe i'm in the united states there are a lot of people who pick the fruit and vegetables, clean the rooms in the hotel. I mean, I think we have a version of that. Do you think it's somehow different in India? I think that, yes, um, definitely you have a version of it, and inequality um, exists everywhere. Um, But there is something quite extreme about it it in, in India because it's so widely accepted um, hmm. And and you see it from such an uh, early age that you know it becomes something that you don't even notice. And I'm not sure that people don't notice in in societies in America or even in Europe this the fact that in India this 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 relationship which is so asymmetrical um, it that's it. No one bats an eyelid. I remember. I mean, it's just it's something that happened with me. I was spending. Um, the the night once at a friend who was very wealthy, her house, and she had um, a, a cousin, and he was, and they were very very wealthy, and they had many servants, and there was um, this. He was reading a book, her her brother, and then this guy came who was their cook, and suddenly he just started to um, press his legs. It was nighttime, and. I was in the other room, and I could see through. And and it was it was a shock for me that this guy scurries into the room, and you know he's so he's just reading his book, but he comes in and starts pressing his legs before he's massaging them, um, so that he before he goes to sleep. And it was like no one batted an eyelid except for me. I just kept watching that scene in utter horror, thinking, okay, this is what happens in this household. 
fine, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is, and all of this happens a lot in India, and you just um, get used to it. Has it changed? Um, it has changed a lot, um, but it it also has persisted. And as um, you know, as you see that the the benefits of growth, the economic growth, have been felt. Um, very unequally and um, you know you have more billionaires being created in India now you have more inequality so at the same time you have a growing awareness as well and you have um, this idea of social mobility um, so so you know it's it's changing but it's also staying the same so it's, it feels like it's happening all at once you have a um this really compelling description of New Delhi that I wanted to read. Uh, Netta is standing at the window of a luxurious suite, and she's looking down at the city. And you write, The traffic was crawling bumper to bumper. The headlights of the cars on the roads twinkled at regular intervals. Delhi always looked its best from a distance, never more beautiful than this or from the air, flying in at night, tracing the concealed city of the ridge, the prehistoric backbone where no lights glowed, the regular streets of the Secretariat, the hive of South Delhi. Um, I love that idea that, or I'm interested in that idea that you have to kind of be away from what makes Delhi Delhi, right? The cacophony, the tumultuousness of it to, in some ways, appreciate its beauty. I had also sounded like I knew that you you would move to uh, Portugal. It sounds like you miss it to yeah. some degree. Do you? <laughs> I miss it all the time, and I only moved. Do you? Yeah, I missed. I, I moved about four years back. So when I started, I was in the middle of writing. Age of Ice, I had started it, and then we moved here. It wasn't, um, and 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 I think I missed it in such a, a deep, intense way that it um, probably helped my writing because I could just I imagined myself there all the time. Um, obviously, as a novelist, you are, but you're there was this magical act of conjuring that I was doing every day, sitting at my desk. And the fact that I wasn't there um, made some something else happen. And I think, I mean, also I was, I feel like I was more radical in my exploration of um, the characters. I might not have done that if I lived in India. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I miss it and that helps with the writing of it. And I'm there a lot anyway, <laughs> but yeah, it helps. Yeah, you, you know, it made me wonder if you had to leave it to really love it love it the way you would want to, to write about, you know, to create a 500 and something page novel about Delhi. Do you think you needed that distance? Yeah, now I think I did. Um, and I think it would have been a very different novel if I had written it in Delhi or in somewhere else in, in India, because um, being, being away from it really changed my relationship. With, with the country and with with its people. I mean, I live in a, you know, I mean, it's very noisy, but it's also this bit of the city that I live in is, is immigrant. 
Um, so I'm surrounded by other South Asians and it feels, sometimes it feels like home, which is great. Um, so, and, and, and just as well, I, I also think that being away from it helped me be more radical in my politics and, and explore the, the corruption and its causes and consequences more. Um, I don't know if, what, how it would have turned out if I voted while I was living in India. Hmm. I mean, when you, you've referred a couple times to your, to radicalizing your politics and do you, you know, from this distance, how much hope do you have that the way India is governed is changing, improving? What would you say about the, the status of India today? I, I don't, I mean, I, I think that, uh, again, it's it's um, this vast country that has, you know, different parts of India being governed differently. Um, so if I if I were to just talk about North India, or at least specifically Delhi, and it's, it's, it's an, it's in a, it's in a place which is not very good at the moment politically mm-hmm. um, there's definitely a clampdown on uh, freedom of the press or freedom of expression mm-hmm. but at the same time there's also there's hope I mean there's always hope you know when you're in India you feel more optimistic about it than when you're away and you're just reading all the news all the time and I don't know I, when I'm there I feel like um, better about it for some weird reason <laughs> Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, one last question for you. And and I'm, I'm interested in your perch from uh, having grown up in India, but now, again, with some distance from it, but being in Europe, is there a book that you read last year that you'd say, I mean, it tapped it, it kind of spoke to something of your immigrant experience, of being away from, you know, family and loved ones. I guess I wonder if, if there was a book that you, that you read that really kind of captured um, what your life is today. Oh, my life. No, I, uh, there was a book, I mean, there was, and I was reading this um, during the first lockdown, Svetlana Alexievich's Secondhand Time. And she's, you know, she's a journalist, but she was writing about the breakup of the Soviet Union. And there's this incredible symphony of voices that she was capturing about change and, and how it impacted you on a psychic, psychological level that felt very, I don't know, I, f- I felt very connected to it. I, I read that mm. um, in 21. And, and and thought about it deeply. It I don't know. It helped me see things. Well, I've been thinking about your novel a lot since I finished it. So yeah. it is a real pleasure to have a chance to talk to you about it. Deepti, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Carrie. I loved your questions. It was such a pleasure to discuss um, the characters and and the novel with you. Deepti Kapoor's new novel is titled Age of Vice. Everyone's talking about it. Everyone's reading it. I hope you will too.